Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38 uh, as we continue in this uh, third message in our new sermon series, The Life of Joseph, or Life Unscripted. In other words, um, Joseph didn't know what was uh, in front of him through his life, as we don't. We don't know what a day will bring, but God knows, and we talked about God's providence uh, before, God knows ahead of time what's going to happen. Uh, and, and last week we ended uh, chapter 37 with a bit of a cliffhanger, if you remember, when we were left wondering what would happen to Joseph uh, after he'd been sold as a slave by his brothers and then resold as a slave to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials in Egypt. And uh, this morning uh, we were, were ready to move ahead, see what happens next. But if you've read chapter 38 of Genesis, you'll realize that Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, throws us a kind of a curveball into the story in this next chapter uh, with a sinful story, really, a very sinful story of, a, of X-rated living by God's people embodied in Joseph's brother, Judah, and his family. In fact, Genesis chapter 38 has to be near the top of the list of the least preached texts in Scripture. I don't know if I've ever heard a message preached from Genesis chapter 38, and I, I don't know if you have. There's, there's death, actually, times two by the hand of God in this chapter. There's sexual relationships, both in marriage and outside of marriage, and lots of things even that parents wouldn't be ready to have their kids exposed to. But I want to say at the beginning, however uncomfortable it may be to hear the words that we're about to read in chapter 38, they remind us of the amazingness of God's grace and of the reality of our sinfulness and our sin. So let's read this chapter. It's 30 verses. It's longer than maybe we would normally read, but I think we need to read it in its entirety. I'm going to begin in the last verse of chapter 37, verse 36 there, which says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. But at that time, it goes on in chapter 38, Judah, Joseph's brother, left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. And she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kibbids uh, that she gave birth to him. Now Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, his other son, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. That's the brother who had died. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for the, his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so God put him to death also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live with her, in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, uh, and his friend Hera, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told 
your father-in-law is on his way to Timnath to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnath. For she saw that though Selah had not grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Now Judah, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There isn't any shrine prostitute here, they said. So they went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there, uh, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. And then Judah said, well, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her th this young goat, but you didn't find her. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out. Uh, and, and have her burned to death. And she, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, If you recognize whose seal and cord these staff are. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he, he was named Perez. And then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out, and he was given the name, the name Dera. What a story. What a story. Let's pray as we, as we begin to look into what God would say to us this morning. Father, we bow before you, Lord, in, 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 uh, in humility. We ask, Lord, that by your spirit you would teach us from your word, that you would warn us even, you would instruct us, that you would cause us, Lord, to uh, sit under your wisdom and the righteousness of your word, that we would learn, Lord, from its warnings and that we would take heed to its exhortations and its examples. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And amen. Now, before we, we really get into the gist of this text this morning, as a reminder, it's, it's important to note a couple of things about the story of Joseph. First of all, it tells us how Israel, that was Jacob's new name, and, and the children of Israel ended up in Egypt, which is so important to the fulfillment of God's promises that he had already made to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be strangers in a land and they would be oppressed for over 400 years. And then secondly, the story of Joseph tells us how the promises of God way back in Genesis chapter 12 would be fulfilled when God had promised Abraham that he would become a great nation. And so the story of Joseph, among many other things, is the story how the children of Jacob or Israel came to be in Egypt, 
and, and then went from being just a, a family or a great family even to becoming a great nation some 400 years later. Now it's true that the events in Genesis chapter 38 that we've just read seem like a bit of an interruption in the story of Joseph and seem to have been kind of thrown into this story of Joseph haphazardly. Uh, but I want to be clear, and I want you to be clear before I say anything else, that these 30 verses were given by divine inspiration. And that Moses wrote this narrative, I believe, exactly as God the Holy Spirit directed him to write them. Listen, if the Bible was not inspired by God, then Genesis 38 wouldn't be here. But he put Genesis 38 here for our instruction, as Paul says in Romans 15 and verse 4, These things are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And I believe in this instance, lest we too, like Judah, easily drift into spiritual decay ourselves. If we read the Bible paying attention to what we read, we'll we'll sometimes come across a passage like this that seems totally out of place, totally out of place. But when that happens, we shouldn't just ignore it and pass over it. That which seems out of place in the word of God is usually put there to get our attention, to teach us something uh, extraordinarily necessary. necessary. And so just because the Bible uh, relates a particular story, we need to remind ourselves that it doesn't necessarily mean that it approves of everything that we read of in the story. Now, before we see what we can learn from Genesis 38, let me briefly suggest two reasons why it's there. First of all, it's to show us why God's ancient people had to be removed and isolated in Egypt. You see, God's covenant people from Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, were beginning to conform to the corruption in Canaan. And so Genesis 38 is a kind of a meanwhile back in the ranch sort of scenario, you know that sort of scenario you know the, the hero is lying tied to the railway tracks the, 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 the train's coming but then the, the movie cuts to back in the ranch and you're wondering what's, what's happening to, to the hero, what's going to happen and, and we have a glimpse of what's happening in Canaan during those years from Joseph's sail, uh, sail into slavery to Jacob's family's move into Egypt to, to preserve his people from being absorbed into the Canaanite culture God's plan was to move them to Egypt where they became slaves. And this forged Israel into a distinct people to this day and prepared them for the later conquest of Canaan. And so that's part of the reason. God needed to move them out of Canaan because they were beginning to to submit to the, the ways of the world in those days. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, Genesis 38 is here to show us that God's grace is sufficient to keep us pure. And unable to help us to resist temptation. Judah is in Canaan among the people of God. Yet he's seeking out sensual pleasure. And what he does is immoral. What he does is sinful. And and if, 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 if anyone should have resisted temptation it should have been Judah. But Joseph on the other hand. As we'll see next week. He's a young man in a strange land. He's been sold as a slave and he's in the household of Potiphar, the governor of Egypt. And, 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 and you know, he's, he's there. His natural passions are at their peak as a young man. 
And immorality and adultery were just as much part of the Egyptian culture and social life as it was becoming in Canaan. And in addition, he had much more to gain, uh, you know, uh, to gain. And, and he had everything to lose by, by, by a similar temptation. But he resists that temptation. We'll see that next week. He could have easily rationalized, you know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do, get involved, do like everybody else. But he chooses to do the right thing. When humanly speaking, he had every reason not to. But Judah's sinful behavior, shameful as it was, really was the, the bleak, black backdrop upon which God was going to display his glory and his grace. And so this is more than just a story of deep sin in a dysfunctional family. This is a story of grace, God's marvelous, free, amazing grace. Because as Paul tells us in Romans 5 and 20, where sin abounds, much more does grace abound. And so I believe Genesis 38 is a message for today. Because the church is becoming more and more indistinguishable from a corrupt and a fallen world. And of course, when we talk about the church, we mean those people who profess to believe in God. And yet it's God's own people who are frequently, uh, frequently uh, uh, compromising their faith and, 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 their, and their trust in God and refusing to live God's way and, and, and eventually will suffer the consequences. Earlier in Genesis, we find the other patriarchs facing similar circumstances to those of Judah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, each discovered that God was concerned with their decisions in choosing where to live, finding a spouse, having and raising children, how to relate to their Canaanite neighbors. But throughout Genesis 38, there's an absence of any seeming awareness of God's presence. And I think today we, we have that as well. Many, many Christians live today uh, with an absence of God's presence and the absence of an awareness of God's presence as if God doesn't know what's going on as if God doesn't know what they're doing as if God doesn't know what they're thinking there's no mention here in, in, in Genesis 38 of God playing any part in Judah's decision to strike out on his own to befriend and go into business with an unbeliever called Hera or to marry a Canaanite woman there's no reference to Judah building any altars he doesn't offer a single prayer or ask God for any guidance in all of those major decisions that he takes. And the absence of any communication with God in regards to these and many other decisions uh, tells us that Judah was open to, at least at risk of sinning and, and of spiritual decay. And you know, one of the greatest sins in the church is not necessarily gossip or strife or Addictions or adultery or all of these things, of course, are sin as well. But the greatest sin today, I believe, is the sin of prayerlessness amongst God's people. Of leaving God out of their everyday experiences. And how easy it is in a busy life, even in our busy service for God even, to allow prayer and communion with God to be crowded out. The old hymn writer Robert Robinson was saved as a teenager uh, through George Whitfield's ministry in England and Shortly after that, he wrote the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. But sadly, he wandered away from God. And like the prodigal son, he journeyed to a distant country of carnality and all sorts of things. And one day he was traveling by stagecoach, sitting beside a young woman who was engrossed 
in reading a book and she ran across a verse she thought was beautiful and she asked him what he thought of it. And the verse said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And bursting into tears, Robert Robinson said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand words if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had back then. You know, wouldn't it be great if being born into a godly family somehow protected us from picking up the world's moral corruption? Wouldn't it be wonderful if on the day that we trusted Christ for our salvation, we were completely sanctified and sin no longer had any attraction to us? But as we all know, both biblically and experientially, it doesn't work that way. God's people are prone to spiritual decay. And Judah, the son of Jacob, the great-grandson of Abraham, a member of God's family uh, that God was dealing with on the earth, he lived just like the Canaanites. And it doesn't matter if you come from a godly family uh, or not. Judah's life shows how easy it is even for God's people to be prone to wander away, to drift away, because as uh, you know, become as, as morally corrupt as the culture around us. And this spiritual decay follows an all-too-familiar progression. Judah married a Canaanite woman. His first two sons were wicked, did wicked things, so God put them to death. Judah refuses to give his third son to his daughter-in-law, as was the custom in that day. And then Judah sleeps with a prostitute, gets her pregnant, orders her to be burned for prostitution, not realizing it was his, his daughter-in-law. Listen, spiritual decay is often first conceived when we start hanging around with the wrong crowd. It is in verse 1, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And while Joseph had no choice about going to Egypt, Judah freely chooses to leave his family and seek out the company of an unbeliever. And he moves further and further away spiritually. The original audience would have uh, been horrified to, to read this story because to leave the faith community was to abandon the covenant and the protection and the blessings of God. So why did he do it? Well, maybe his conscience was bothering him about selling his brother Joseph. And he had trouble looking at his grieving father every day, knowing that he was the cause of it all. I, I, there are many reasons, but whatever the reason. 1 Corinthians 15 and 33 says this, Listen, bad company corrupts good character. Let that sink in. Bad company corrupts good character. This didn't happen accidentally, I'm sure, or immediately. It was uh, a deliberate choice on Judah's part. Perhaps he saw the way that Hira and the people of Adullam seemed to be having so much fun and enjoying life. And, and he thought, well, I'm tired and bored, you know, being part of the people of God and living this life. I want some fun. I want some excitement. I'll, I'll move near Hira. Although at this point none of his brothers were a particular, particularly godly bunch, as we, we saw before, his move signified a deliberate move away from the covenant people of God. And this is where spiritual decay usually begins. It can happen when a young person is uh, uh, attracted to the less than worthy lifestyle of, of other young people. Or in college, when a young person is first away from home with no one holding them accountable. 
Or after years, sometimes many years of marriage, when the grass seems to be greener on the other side of the fence, so to speak. And on one, more than one occasion in Scripture, the church is described uh, as, as the bride of Christ and Jesus as the groom. And one day, yes, there'll be a heavenly wedding and the, the, we'll all sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. And the church will be presented to him. And just as a husband and wife need to be faithful to one another in earthly marriage, because when people break their vows and are unfaithful to their spouse, they commit adultery. So God's people need to be careful not to be unfaithful to God by loving worldly ways of living. Because spiritual adultery is owing one person an exclusive love, but willingly sharing it with another. But let me ask you honestly this morning, do you ever give the love you owe to God to someone else or to something else in your life? The answer is yes, then you're a spiritual adulterer. The answer is no, then maybe you don't understand your heart like you should. Every time we disobey God or choose to neglect him for some other pleasurable thing, putting it first, we're running into the arms of another lover. And whatever that other lover, that other thing represents, you can be assured that that lover hasn't the capacity to love you back, doesn't have your best interest in mind, and doesn't have the capacity to satisfy you like Jesus, your true love. Spiritual adultery is essentially the same as idolatry. Worshipping anything or anybody other than God. And the inconvenient truth is that we have all committed spiritual adultery at one time or another, in one way or another, and sadly we'll be prone, always prone on this side of eternity, to doing it again. When someone becomes a Christian, they don't become perfect or completely sanctified overnight. But at some early point in their Christian walk, a genuine believer should be showing the evidence and the fruit of, of true conversion Listen, grace that doesn't change us and keep changing us is not the grace of God. So let's remind ourselves of the truth that our, our, our sins are acts of spiritual adultery instead of little minor infractions that God kind of winks an eye at. It's not like that. God takes sin seriously, especially amongst his own people. So let's remind ourselves as well of the innumerable ways that God has loved us so perfectly. He's a good, good father we were singing. He has loved us perfectly through his son, Jesus. And that should help us to stay faithfully in his arms and in his arms alone. You realize that spiritually speaking, you're either a thermometer or a thermostat. A thermometer takes the temperature of the environment, becomes like the environment. A thermostat, though, is a change agent. And rather than the environment changing it, the thermostat changes and regulates uh, its world. Yes, God has not called us to live in isolation. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And yet we're either influencing those around us for godliness, or they are influencing us, however much we understand it, for godlessness. No one can stand still spiritually. And it's essential it's essential that we build redemptive relationships with those who don't yet know God for the sake of evangelism, but to do for any other purpose will put us at risk of being spiritually corrupted ourselves and probably not lead them to being saved. That's why in a local church, we need to engage our community in redemptive activities where we can witness and develop God-honoring relationships that encourage others to seek Christ for themselves. 
But think about this. There's at least two obvious factors that will distinguish who we are. Both now, today, and 10 or 20 years from now. What are those two factors? Amongst others, our entertainment choices. Friends. We watch what we read, what we listen to, and participate in will drastically influence our worldview. And the friends that we're comfortable hanging out with will dramatically influence our character. And if you're comfortable, or I should say, if you're uncomfortable around those with a heart for God, yet you find you're comfortable with those who have little or no time for God or spiritual values, there's a problem. You're going down Judah's path, whether you realize it or not. Spiritual decay is conceived in prayerlessness and is given birth when a believer chooses to distance themselves from God's people and builds friendships with unbelievers. The fruit of that will be seen when a believer marries outside of the people of God. Verse 2, there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and he lay with her. Parents, can I urge you this morning? even grandparents, and, and uh, to repeat this over and over and over again to them, to resist dating an unbelieving person. Just dating a lost person can start a downward spiral to, uh, to lower your previously held Christian standards and values and boundaries. And if you do date a lost person, there's a high probability that you'll marry one. God's very concerned about unholy matrimony. I spoke about this before, maybe four or five months ago, when a believer marries an unbeliever, because the stage is usually set for conflict and, and for conformity and for compromise. Second Corinthians chapter six, Paul reinforced this principle by asking five rhetorical questions. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What, uh, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and Belial or the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, he says. As God has said, I will, I will live with them and, and be among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. The answer to those rhetorical questions is there is no harmony. They're incompatible. There's just no way. You know, when the Bible talks about being unequally yoked, the concept is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 22, where Israelites were told not to plow with an ox, a clean animal, and a donkey, an unclean animal yoked together. The ox and the donkey were incompatible, uncooperative because of their natures and their temperaments, but were vastly different. <laughs> Excuse me. And so the application to marriage is obvious. A believer is to be yoked with another believer so that together they can serve God by journeying through life, working together in harmony. And folks, I want you to listen to me this morning. If you hear nothing else, God takes the unequal yoke even more seriously in the New Testament era, in our day, the church age, than he did in the Old Testament. Because we don't just don't worship in a temple, we are the temple of God. And whether it's a Christian young woman who marries an unbelieving man or vice versa, when you ask them why they're doing that, you hear all kinds of rationalizations, don't you? Well, you know, I love him or I love her and loves what really matters the most. Or, 
he or she promises to come to church with me. Uh, uh, if I break up with them, they, they won't have anyone else to lead them to Christ. Or Besides, I'm sure they're going to become a Christian. I've, I've prayed about it and I feel peace that this is God's will. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Gordon, I know of cases where a believer married an unbeliever and everything turned out fine. The unbeliever came to faith in Christ. Today they have a fine Christian family. Listen, missionary dating very seldom works. Because when emotions get involved and romance is in the air, the non-Christian is usually the one with more, uh, more influence. But yes, God is sovereign and there are exceptions, especially when the believing, unbelieving spouse repents. But no one should deliberately disobey God and hope for their case to be the exception. So yes, it can happen. God is often gracious in using even our foolish, sinful decisions for good when, when there's repentance. But that shouldn't encourage us to sin that grace might abound. That's not what Paul meant. Listen, throughout history, Satan has used marriage, marriage to unbelievers, to distract and turn God's people away from devotion to him. I want to speak the truth in love to you this morning. And to some of you this morning, it's never God's will for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, period. You should no more pray about marrying a non-Christian than you should pray about whether it's God's will for you to commit adultery or murder. Uh, if you claim to love God and then willfully choose to unite yourself with a non-Christian in the most intimate uh, relationship this side of heaven, the Bible actually says that you're desecrating the holiness of God. So don't let your drive for human intimacy lead your heart to grow cold towards your heavenly father. That being said, uh, if you're married right now to someone who doesn't confess faith in Christ, you shouldn't try to get out of the relationship. Pray for your spouse. Provide the environment for God to go to work and practice the principles taught in 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Living Translation Verses 2 and 3 would encourage you this way. Your godly life will speak to them. That is your unsaved spouse. Better than any words. They will be won over by watching your pure godly behavior. And I also realize that some of you are here this morning. And you may be in a situation of separation or, 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 or even divorce. And maybe you've suffered through some incredibly painful experiences. Some of you ex have experienced pain the likes of which I'll never know. And I pray I'll never know. I've not walked in your shoes. I'm simply a fellow follower of Christ who strove to put him first in my own marriage. But I want you to know that although the scriptures in Malachi clearly tell us that God hates divorce, he hates what that does to people and to couples and to families, whatever your marital status is this morning, God doesn't hate you. He loves you. So whatever your marital status is this morning, let me just draw your attention to a phrase that's repeated in Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the spouse or the wife or the husband of your youth. Well, in this story, Judah's boys eventually grew up. Marriage at age 15 was not uncommon back then. And Judah finds a wife, Tamar, for his oldest son, Ur. And contrary to his Great-grandfather Abraham's strong warning, having picked a Canaanite wife for himself, he now picks another one for his son. It's not surprising then to read, while this specific sin is not mentioned, 
uh, whatever he got involved in, error was so sinful that God took his life. There's no getting away from what the scriptures tell us. God took him out. Then Judah told his second son, Onan, to take Tamar and perform his duty as a brother-in-law to her. This is what's called Leverite marriage. Uh, from the Latin lever, meaning the husband's brother, it was a common custom in those days. When a, when a brother uh, died childless, his wife was expected to marry the brother. And so Onan marries the widow, Tamar. But he doesn't want to give his brother an heir, so that would mess up his own inheritance. He was now in line to receive the lion's share of his father, Judah's estate. So he simply uses the union with Tamar to satisfy his own sexual desires. So God takes Onan's life out too. Because all he wanted was sexual pleasure without responsibility. And you know, that same attitude of sexual gratification without responsibility is why we're murdering babies in the womb every day. Or why people live common law instead of committing to marriage. And it makes me think that if God today just held professing Christians accountable for the cavalier attitude towards sexual pressure without responsibility, the local morgue would be filled with corpses. Thomas Jefferson, one of the presidents of the United States, who said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Striking people dead for sin seems incredibly harsh. And many people would rationalize and say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. But that's faulty thinking, you know, faulty reasoning for those who don't really know Scripture. The God of the New Testament arranged a double funeral for a couple who had, who had fudged on a property deal in Acts chapter 5. And church members at Corinth ended up on the slabs of the morgue because of their cavalier attitude towards the Lord's Supper. Our difficulties with the severity and the judgment of God say more about us than they do about God. We get irritated if God doesn't fit into our notions of what he ought to be like. God is loving and he's gracious. But listen, he's also holy and he's just. And Judah doesn't have a clue as to why his boys are dropping like flies. All he knows is that they marry this girl, Tamar, and they die. So maybe somehow she's the cause. So there's no way he's going to let his last son marry a woman who's obviously jinxed. And so Judah tells Tamar to return to her home and wait until Selah is old enough to marry, but he never intends to, to go through with that. Doing that, he sentenced Tamar to a life of childlessness and, and poverty. And as the years pass, two other events occur that set the scene for Judah to depart even further from the faith of his fathers. He's left his father's family. He's formed a business partnership with an unbeliever. He's married an unbeliever and has three children. Two so sinful that God takes their lives away. And now his Canaanite wife, whose name is never mentioned, passes away. And in a sexually saturated society, this puts Judah in a very vulnerable position himself. And after a period of grieving, along with his friend Hera, Judah decides to go up to Timnah to shear sheep. Now, the moral atmosphere of the annual sheep shearing in those days might best be understood when maybe you compare it to a modern beer commercial. You visualize a group of hard-working shepherds finishing an exhausting, hot, thirsty week among sheep, shearing the sheep, leaving the fields after completing the annual sheep shearing task, and suddenly one yells out, It's booze time, boys! And with a girl on one arm 
and, and, and a bottle of booze in the other, the party begins. That's what it was like. And Tamar knew well what took place at sheep shearing season. So she set in, into action a plan to get a son to carry on the name of her first husband. And apparently Judah himself had a bit of a reputation and moral purity wasn't one of his virtues. He was never one to miss an opportunity. And so he negotiates the terms with what he thinks is a prostitute and Tamar becomes pregnant by him. So it's been well said that sin will take you further than you want to stray. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. And so it was for Judah. Three months passed by, the word came to Judah that his daughter-in-law was pregnant. So this could mean only one thing, she'd been unfaithful. And Judah was so incensed that he commanded that she be brought out and she be burned right away. But when the servants came to get her, she produced the seal and the cord and the walking stick and said she was pregnant by the owner of those items. And Judah was now caught out. Listen, God will not be mocked will not be mocked. Then we'll find you out. So he hung his head and he declared that, that Tamar was, he said, is more righteous than I. Don't misunderstand that. Judah's not saying that Tamar is righteous. He's saying that Tamar is righteous in comparison to him. He had not only been involved with a woman who was not, who he was not married to, it was his son's widow, and this all came about because Judah was deceptive in his promise to her about his third son. The outcome of this is that she had twins, Perez and Zerah, and Judah was never intimate with her again, and Tamar spent the rest of her life just looking after her sons. The whole point of this unsavory, X-rated episode in Genesis uh, 38, the danger of compromise, not just in our relationships. It's an ever-present and real danger in any area of life because any time we let our spiritual guard down, any time we tolerate or pursue that which is sin and neglect our first love in the pursuit of it, it's easy to drift into spiritual decay. And it can happen in so many subtle ways, you know. Uh, you have to conduct your business like everybody else or you can't make it, so you under-report your annual income. You overcharge customers. You cheat on expenses, turning in receipts for things that were not business related. And you do it all in the name of good business. Except that this kind of good business is sin. And the slow fade into spiritual decay has begun. You believe that you have to have everything that the world says you need to have. So you borrow heavily to buy what you need. And the result is you're so bound up in debt that you have to cut back maybe on your giving to church or other causes and your contentment is tied to what you have and rather than in whom you trust and the, the slow fade in the spiritual compromise and decay has begun. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we act like some sins are worse than others. Sometimes we act like some sinners are worse than others. Sometimes we act like our sins are okay while the sins of unbelievers or sins of our culture are really bad. And Judah was like that. Sins of Tamar were bad, but his sins, they were okay until he was caught out. Judah needed to learn a lesson. He needed to be humiliated into recognizing his own sin. 
And you know, as we, we close out here this morning, I, I can't help but think that some of us, maybe all of us, need to be humbled at times as well, don't we? Judah, we see so many mixed up family situations today. I think of things like divorce and remarriage, physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse, adultery, broken promises, premarital sex, single parent homes. It's real easy like Judah to condemn those in those situations. It's real easy like Judah to call for punishment or judgment upon such people. It's real easy for us to condemn the obvious sins in others while ignoring our own sins. Things like gossip and pride and envy and bitterness and anger. And if the story of Judah and Tamar tells us anything, it's to be careful. Because it's often those who condemn the loudest that are as bad or even worse than the people that they condemn. So often we fool ourselves into thinking that our, our sins are respectable, even acceptable. Our gossip, our unkind words about a brother or sister in Christ roll easily off our tongues without any awareness of wrongdoing. We harbor hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive as God has forgiven us. We look down, uh, we look down our religious noses at sinners in society with any, without any sense of, of a humble spirit that there but for the grace of God go I. Like Judah, we all need to be humble and humbled. Like Judah, we need to see ourselves as God sees us. Like Judah, we might have to say, even of someone whose behavior we don't like, he or she is more righteous than I. Easy to come out of uh, this passage and feel beaten up because of the easy drift into spiritual decay. But God wants us to see, I think, even a more powerful truth in the way this sordid story ends. We read about the birth of the twins, Perez and Zerah, illegitimate children born out of an incestuous relationship. I don't know what their life was like growing up, but I can tell you how God used them. In Matthew chapter 1, we have a record of the, the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus, and guess who gets a mention? Guess who gets a mention? God chose to bring the Messiah through Judah, the compromising, immoral liar, and through Tamar and Perez, Perez, her illegitimate son. They're mentioned there. God not only forgave them and restored them, he transformed them. And one of the great stories of the last chapters of Genesis is the change that we'll see eventually that comes about in the life of Judah. So I hope this morning that although God has certainly challenged me as I prepared this, and I hope he has challenged you this morning, I hope also that he has encouraged you. Let's, let's bow in prayer.